We're continuing in our discipleship series, Simplicity in Life with God. Our theme verses are from 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 4. I'm not going to read that again this evening, but we've looked at it several times. And the subject is celebration. And our passage of scripture that we're going to start with is going to be Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4. So if you want to turn there, we'll read that verse here in just a moment. We last considered the sacredness of solitude. Solitude being what helps us overcome the distractions of life, helps us recognize our limitations, serves to draw us closer to God in our relationship with Him, helps us listen better as we hear the Word and the Spirit, and helps us renew physical and spiritual strength. And what we know is that whether it be on a daily basis or it be on a retreat basis or something longer, is that God uh, will reward us for time spent alone with him. That he promises that if we draw near to him, that he'll draw near to us. There's a quote here from J.I. Packer. He said, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place in their own accord. Vernon Howard said, you've succeeded in life when all you really want is only what you really need. Celebration is the practice of being genuinely present in the moments of our lives. In all of the years that I have been listening to preaching, and it's quite a few now, I've never heard a subject, uh, this subject in a sermon. I've heard joy um, and other themes that kind of go along with it, but not just directly celebration. And it's striking when you start looking through the Bible at the illustrations as well as just scriptural examples and, and uh, references, how much joy comes up and how much celebration comes up as well. Randy Alcorn wrote the book on happiness a few years back. We actually did a study on it and I enjoyed it. But he said, I think it's fair to say that many Christians don't believe that God is happy. If we did believe it, wouldn't we be happier, is the question that Alcorn asked. Joy is a common theme in the Bible. As Christians, the foundation of our joy is our salvation in Christ. But then we also can celebrate the steadfast love of God. The love that is extended to us in salvation is also the love that sustains us throughout our lives. And then we rejoice at God's presence when we're walking with him daily we're spending time in solitude, we're listening to the Word and the Spirit. If you think about it, we find the idea, or at least the principle of celebration at the very outset of Scripture. God created the world and everything in it in six days, and He saw all that He had made, and it was good, it was very good, and so He rested. I think that, in a way, was a celebration of what God had done through his spoken word, creating something out of nothing and putting it into motion. And then, of course, we get to be the beneficiaries of that, even though we live in a sinful and broken world. And then we look at the life of Jesus. Jesus lived his life at such a pace that he was not preoccupied with his own agenda to the point that he missed the moments around him. And as I define what celebration is, celebration being the idea of being present in the moment to what is, 
and seeing the beauty in the ordinary moments, um, Jesus was good at that. And he lived in communion with the Father and with the Spirit and carried out his life in a way that he could minister to others and bring joy to them. Think about the outset of the public ministry of Jesus when he performed the miracle at the wedding feast of Cana. Uh, he turned the water into wine, of course, in John chapter 2. That was a celebration. And then at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he gathers his disciples together for that final Passover meal in which he instituted the Lord's Supper. They ate, they drank, they celebrated the faithfulness of God, and Jesus urged them to continue to remember and to celebrate him and to reflect on all that he had done. And then in the life of the Apostle Paul, Paul modeled a deep abiding joy as a servant of God, and you remember that he did it in the face of great hardship. So when we look at Paul's words here in just a moment in Philippians chapter 4, this is not just theory. This is a man who lived out what he's telling the church. He modeled to the church at Philippi the kind of joy that we're to have. After all, he wrote it from a prison cell, but he rejoices anyway. He's a man who was arrested uh, wrongfully. He was shipwrecked. He was bitten by a viper. He was put under house arrest. He had every reason not to rejoice. Many of us would have been the chief complainers had we found ourselves in the circumstances that he found himself in. But he says this in Philippians 4 and verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. I think everyone wants joy in life. But the question is, when we look at our surroundings, is, is it really possible to rejoice always? The Apostle Paul understood and described something that requires supernatural joy. So this is not manufactured joy. This is not circumstantial happiness. This is joy in the Lord that takes supernatural strength. And as you know, if you've read through Philippians, and I'm sure you have, there are multiple references to rejoicing in the letter. The word joy comes up time and again, and it's a commandment. It's important to note that this is a commandment. It's not just a passing thought or a nice idea. It's a commandment that is repeated twice for emphasis. It is a command that we choose to obey, especially when times are difficult. And what I want you to note as we move along tonight that is that celebration has as much to do with our attitude or our attitudes as it does with our circumstances. Now, practically speaking, celebration surrounds uh, special moments, memories, movement or transitions and different things that are happening to new seasons of life. And the importance of celebrating is reflected in physical and spiritual health and also relationship health. Now, as a secular culture, we have a pretty good idea about what celebrating should look like. Uh, you might have watched the Super Bowl this past weekend. Uh, many of you didn't, I'm sure, but some of you might have. And you might not know that it was and is the single largest sporting event in the world, including everything surrounding it. Now, obviously, there are bigger stadium venues and there are bigger uh, things that happen worldwide, but everything that goes along with this entire event is the largest event in the world. 
it was said to have drawn 330,000 people to Las Vegas. Obviously not for the game itself. I think they seat 62,000. But it drew 330,000 additional people to the city. Now get this. A 30-second commercial cost $7 million to air. Fans across the country prepping for Super Bowl parties spent $17 billion in Super Bowl celebration and a staggering 123.4 million people watched the game. And that number was just initially, it might even be a little bit higher. I heard a number that was a little bit higher a couple of days ago. So we get the concept of celebrating and being happy and excited about things, but is it related to the most important things? Oftentimes celebrations focus on milestone moments that make those moments feel even bigger and more significant. And with that, we sometimes take smaller moments of celebration for granted and we lose sight of them. So if we have a, something that happened to us that's good on a particular day, or we just had a particularly good day, it do, doesn't even have to be anything magnificent that happened that day, that's cause for a mini celebration. Uh, and there are a lot of little things that we miss out on because we're looking to the big moments and we need to learn to make the most of every event and every season and enjoy life. So what we're going to do is we're going to consider four principles for celebration in the remaining time that we have, along with some application at the end. The first principle is this. Celebration is commanded by God. Now we go back to the Old Testament here to begin to lay the foundation of God as a celebrating God. I've already talked about the creation account and how God rested because he saw that what he had made was very good. And God also commanded his people to celebrate. You think about the feasts that are found in the Old Testament. There are seven feasts that highlight this. Don't have time to deal with all of them in depth, but I just want to mention them uh, pretty quickly as I move along here. The Passover being one, of course, with the feast remembering the last plague in Egypt when the angel of death passed over the children of Israel who applied the doorpost, uh, the lamb, the blood of the lamb to the doorpost. And of course, what did that point to? It pointed to Jesus as the ultimate Passover lamb. Jesus as the ultimate point of celebration. Then there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a seven-day feast that began on the day following the start of the Passover. Uh, they had no time in leaving Egypt to put leaven or yeast in their bread. And of course, leaven's also associated with sin in the scripture. And the unleavened bread points to Jesus ultimately as the perfect sacrifice uh, for our sins. And then the feast of the first fruits would honor God and show gratitude to God for what he had done on their behalf. Uh, the priest would sacrifice the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the month. Uh, and then the first day of Passover was the 15th. So they would celebrate this on the third day, which would be the 16th day. And the third day, having some overtones, some symbolism of when Jesus was raised from the dead. Then the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. This was the second of three harvest feasts. Um, it's seven weeks after the Feast of the First Fruits and what we refer to as Passover. And the church was born on Pentecost with a harvest of thousands of souls. Again, a reminder of the gospel. 
Then the Feast of Trumpets, where God commanded his people to, to rest, and they offered a food offering to God. You remember they commemorated it with trumpet blasts? Well, there's a correlation with that in the return of Jesus, that the trumpet is going to sound, and the dead in Christ will rise, and Jesus will uh, bring us to meet him in the air. And then the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement being to make atonement for wrongdoings. The high priest would offer up the sacrifice uh, once a year, Jesus being our atonement, being offered up once and for all, and then finally the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles celebrating God's provision during the 40 days in, or the 40 years, I should say, in the wilderness. And when we think about the Feast of Tabernacles, when we talk about the incarnation of Jesus, John 1.14, for example, um, there is a direct reference there, literally the reference there is to Jesus tabernacling among us, that Jesus took up his residency among us here on the earth. In summary, our joy is in celebrating Jesus. All of these feasts were pointing to the ultimate celebration of all, and God commands us to celebrate what he has done on our behalf. Listen to what Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 1 says, and then I'll share part of verse 4 as well. For everything, there's a season and a time for everything under heaven, a time to weep and a time to laugh. And then verse 12 and 13, I know that there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man should, uh, every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. And then 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 16 says, rejoice always. The command to rejoice always is written with the primary intent of exhorting and comforting the believers to whom it was written. Paul encouraged the believers to live daily in a way that they would please God and to rejoice is a call to joy. And it was a watchword among the early Christians. So we celebrate knowing that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. We celebrate knowing that God's calling and gifts are irrevocable. We celebrate knowing that one day we're going to see the Lord face to face. And our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is in what the Lord has done. Our hope is in what the Lord continues to do. Our hope is in what the Lord will do in the future, regardless of our circumstances or our feelings. So when the scripture says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, or uh, it says that we are to um, rejoice and it's the will of God for us in Christ Jesus, what he's saying is that God's will is about more than circumstances that we have in the moment. It's about how we respond to our circumstances. And celebration is commanded by God. But then there's a second principle. Celebration is driven by gratitude. Ungrateful people are not good at celebrating. Uh, there are a lot of reasons for that, but I, I think that's an accurate statement. And I want to read now from Psalm 107 in the first three verses that reflect this very connection between celebration and gratitude. He says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. 
Gratitude has been defined as the, the act of recognizing and acknowledging the good things that happen that result in a state of appreciation in our lives. Now, I understand that gratitude is a small thing, but it can have big benefits. I also understand that day-to-day life can be quite challenging between family concerns and financial burdens and health problems and more. But when you think of all that you have to be grateful for, it begins to change the focus. We should have gratitude for the steadfast love of God that is mentioned in Psalm 107. Now, there's something interesting in Psalm 107 that stood out to me as I was thinking about this particular principle. There are four accounts in Psalm 107 of people in distress or distressing situations. Verse 4, verse 10, verse 17, and verse 23, whom God rescued. The psalm concerns gratitude specifically for Judah's return from exile. And I think the, the accounts probably describe the activities of the members of the tribe of Judah in their exile. And the concern is for the thanks of the entire community toward God. But the thanksgiving is intentionally directed toward God because God is good and his mercy endures forever. That's the reason the gratitude is directed toward him. And the psalmist is inviting the people to declare their redemption, to declare that God is good and his mercy endures forever, to declare that God is their redeemer. And gratitude goes a long way in our day-to-day lives, not just in the big moments when we're thanking God. Of course, we should be thanking God daily for what he provides for us. It should just be a spirit of thanksgiving to where when something good happens, we might not pray a long involved prayer, but we might simply say, God, thank you for helping me in this moment. Thank you for for providing for that need. Thank you for giving me that peace that I needed in that moment. And one thing I've noticed as people have grown more and more self-centered, it seems, and I know this is anecdotal, but it is what it is. I think as people have grown more self-centered, they've become less grateful. Where we're entitled, we have this idea that somebody owes us something or that we deserve somebody should have just done that for us and we fail at times to recognize the blessing of people doing even small things for us and I think gratitude goes a long way I read an illustration about Lou Holtz the football coach who said he had committed to writing thank you notes every day as a part of his work rhythm and he would write a note to pretty much anybody he'd write a note to a server at a restaurant that had done well by him or something else, an airline pilot. I mean, just kind of random things in his life. But he saw it as a way to show gratitude and as a way uh, to encourage people. And he did that for decades. He had everyone in his organization, players, coaches, support staff, he would encourage them to say thank you at least once a day to somebody for something. That's That's a pretty good principle to apply. And what it does is it says to God, first of all, that we realize everything we have from him is because he's good and his mercy endures forever, not because we deserved it. But then what it says is when other people do things for us is that we appreciate that moment that they were willing to take the step to do that and do something that would be beneficial to us. And it makes a difference. It's a big encouragement to people. And most of us are going through the ordinary routine of life. You know, it's, it can be somewhat mundane from day to day. But when there are those little interactions and we see some gratitude, it it can help us 
help us go a long way toward uh, feeling encouraged. Psalm 118 and verse 24 says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. When we celebrate, we are expressing gratitude to God and glorifying God. And our gratitude exalts the giver more than the gift because what it says to us is that we recognize everything we have has come from God's hand, uh, not because in some way we deserved it. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 15 says, And as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving, and God will receive more and more glory. Now, it's not that joy makes us more grateful. It's that gratefulness brings us more joy. Let me say that again. It's not that joy makes us more grateful, although it does, I think. It's gratefulness that brings us more joy. And often when we consider what we're grateful for, we think about things like our upbringing, family, job, health, opportunities. But as I mentioned earlier, we might miss out on those everyday things that the Lord blesses us with. Uh, there's an illustration that I saw that talked about uh, the iceberg of gratitude. And the way it was illustrated was, of course, with a picture, with an iceberg. And as you know, a typical iceberg has only a portion that is visible above the water, and then the rest of it is below the water that you can't see. And the point that the person who came up with this illustration made was that the part that we see that's out of the water, those are the big things that everybody knows to be grateful for. Everybody knows to celebrate. These are the big milestones. These are the big celebrations. These are the normal things that we would all think are time for celebration. But they said what happens is we just forget about everything below the surface. And there's all these other blessings and things that God does for us that we just take for granted. And we need to start recognizing the, the, the bottom side of the iceberg as well as the obvious part, not just looking at what we see above the water, uh, but also what is below uh, the surface. So gratitude is essentially a celebration in and of itself. People who understand celebration appreciate the smallest things to be grateful for in life, uh, whether that be a meeting that went smoothly, a text of encouragement from a friend, a kind compliment, a gracious word. And through gratitude, we can learn to appreciate those everyday things that some people might miss and even when things aren't going well, we can celebrate. And that's why James said to us that we're to consider it pure joy when we face various kinds of trials. So celebration is driven by gratitude. Now for the third principle. Celebration provides strength. I look now to Nehemiah chapter 8. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, all the people were gathered together. Let me give you a little bit of background and context on what was going on. The people were led to rebuild Jerusalem and her walls, and they had a great celebration just 52 days after the work had begun. You remember a little bit about the story. Uh, Ezra the scribe was asked to bring the book of the law of Moses uh, that the Lord had given Israel. And they made a raised platform, and Ezra got up on that raised platform that was made just for that purpose, and he began to read the Word of God. He began to read the law of God to them. And he did so from daybreak until noon. And the men, the women, everyone who could understand, they listened intently to the book of the law. And Ezra blessed the Lord. 
And one of the responses to them listening intently to the book of the law is that they were all in tears. They weren't in tears because of celebration. They were in tears because of repentance and regret. They were in tears because they began to be reminded of the sins that they had committed and their spiritual condition before the Lord. But Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites said to the people, beginning in verse 9, This day is holy to the Lord your God, Nehemiah 8 and verse 9. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the law. Verse 10, Then he said to them, Go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to the Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And then verse 12 says, Then all the people began to eat and drink, send portions, and have a great celebration, because they had understood the words that were explained to them. These people were chosen, rescued, promised. God's people had suffered the consequences of their sin and rejection of the covenant. They ended up in exile because of it. They now then were to celebrate because God had brought them forgiveness and restoration. And the original word for joy in Hebrew means joy or gladness. But the root word for joy in this context means to rejoice or to make glad. So again, this is not just an idea. It's an action. It's something that we put into play. And strength is a place of safety and protection or refuge. The root word of strength means to be strong or to prevail, to make firm and to strengthen. So the joy of the Lord is the reality that we can continually live out. And it's been said that the joy of the Lord is a bubbling up of the contentment that we feel because we are connected rightly with God and it's almost entirely unrelated to our circumstances. Now, back to the quote that I shared earlier about most people not believing that God is a joyful God or God not being a, uh, a God of happiness. God is joyful. And I think that's obvious in the scripture. Aquinas said, God is happiness by his essence. For he is not happy by acquisition or participation from something else, but by his essence. And on the other hand, men are happy by participation. Now, let me draw this in a little bit uh, closer here. What we're saying is that God is happiness. We experience happiness. We participate in it. So God is the same always. His character is not affected by what's going on around him. He is who he is. He does what he does. And he relates as he relates. We, on the other hand, experience these things as how we get to uh, enjoy them. And joy is, the fundamental, is a fundamental part of who God is. So let's make this connection here. If it's true that God is happiness, and I believe it is biblically, and if we find God as our source of happiness or our source of celebration, then we, will we not in turn experience the same? St. Augustine said, following after God is the desire of happiness, but to reach God is happiness itself. Now, some of you have probably already thought about joy as an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5 uh, lays this out. When you read Galatians 5, you see the, the works of the flesh, which are sinful to the core, and then you see the fruit of the Spirit, and there's this contrast there. And I believe that there's one fruit of the Spirit, but there are nine aspects 
So the fruit of the Spirit is the result of us being indwelled by the Holy Spirit, being surrendered to the Holy Spirit, and then these are the things that the Holy Spirit produces in us when we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit and we are uh, yielded to Him and filled with Him. So love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control being the nine aspects, joy being at the heart of that. And that's true because it's a soul-deep assurance of the presence and goodness of God in your life. And God is, is said to even sing over us with delight, according to the prophet Zephaniah, that God sings over his people. He is a God of joy. Uh, Henry Spence, the 19th century preacher, said, God is so joyous that he even finds joy in us. Now, you process that for a moment, but uh, he's so patient, loving and merciful, kind. And God is our strength for life, for troubles, for pain, for relationships, for family, for missions, for kingdom advance, for everything. God is our strength, and his celebration provides strength. Now for the fourth principle. Celebration puts things into perspective. Biblical perspective involves seeing God accurately for who he is and understanding life for what it is. I like what David Van Acker said about this in relation to the Israelites. He said, the Israelites had witnessed God's marvelous unprecedented work but lacked the spiritual sight and insight to rightly appreciate it. It was their broken perspective that allowed them to see all that they saw. Plagues, parted rivers, impossible military victories, shaking mountains, pillars of fire, water coming from rocks, food coming from dirt, and on and on. And still decide that the best response was to build a cow out of gold and worship it. If they'd had eyes to see things as they truly were, then they would have acted differently. But they didn't need different circumstances, whether it be less suffering or more miracles. What they needed was a different perspective. Now, maybe some of us tonight need a different perspective. We get myopic. We look at our own problems. We get bogged down in our own stresses. We get inside our own head and we forget about the goodness of God. And we need a perspective change that would help us as much as anything. I think about how Jesus taught the disciples that, uh, that they had believed in him. And unlike the Pharisees, they had been blessed with spiritual sight. Now, the reality is none of us have spiritual sight apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But he was making a particular point, And the Pharisees had been people of privilege. They had been people who were blessed by the covenant of God and the law of God and everything that went along with that. And yet they looked at Jesus performing miracles and sharing unprecedented wisdom, and he was right in front of them. I mean, they could have touched him, and yet they still doubted him. Their problem wasn't their experiences. Their problem was their spiritual blindness. And from Paul, we learn that the devil is actively working through fallen man to block our perspective. He wants to blind our way to the glory of God in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, of course, is the, uh, is the classic passage here. But one of the devil's greatest weapons is not uh, atheism. 
rather one of the greatest weapons is to tell us a different story than is true in our blindness. It's to deceive us, to make us think something that we shouldn't, and to reinterpret things that we know are not right from our understanding of God, and to cause us not to experience what he has for us. So he tells lies like, well, God's boring. God's mean. God's not pleased with you. You're basically a good person. You don't really need God. You're free to come to God on your own terms. See, these are the things that the enemy tells us. And he's trying to blind us away from what is actually good. And there's a book uh, entitled uh, Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave that one of the Welches wrote. And one of the, the best illustrations in that book is the illustration of idolatry. And what he does in that book, he's talking about uh, how addictions cause us basically to dig our own grave because we're caught up in the throes of what is harmful and unhelpful for us. But he describes idolatry in this way. He said, what the devil does is the devil presents us with an idol, that idol, shiny, it's attractive, it looks good, tells you there's going to be a payoff from it, whether that be people or power or pleasure or, or prominence or any number of other things or addictions can be an idol as well. And what he does, he tells us these things are going to bring us some type of satisfaction that we're not going to get with God. And this is the shortcut. This is like the golden calf shortcut. We're going to be able to worship. Man's been up on the mountain too long. We're just going to go ahead and take all this gold and we're going to make a calf and we're going to get on with it. That's what the devil wants you to do. He basically wants you to get on with your life and he presents these idols that he tells you are going to bring pleasure to you. Now, here's the thing we know. Sin is pleasurable for a season. Now, it might be a short season, but it can be pleasurable for a season. But what happens is that the devil is hiding behind that idol, and the payoff is not what we expected. The pleasure is not what we anticipated, and the pain is far greater. And in that, he uses that blindness to convince us that we can find happiness somewhere else besides God. And here's what perspective does. It helps us see beyond our immediate circumstances and our difficulties so that we can see the big picture of life and eternity. I want to look now at Psalm 145 and read uh, through verse 7. Psalm 145 begins with, I exalt you, my God, the King, and bless your name forever and ever. I bless you, you every day. I will praise your name forever and ever. The Lord is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. I will speak of your splendor and glorious majesty and your wondrous works. They will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts and I will declare your greatness. They will give a testimony of your great goodness and will joyfully sing of your righteousness. The perspective we need is the grace greatness and goodness of God as we reflect on the evidences of his glory. If we are captivated by who God is, we will celebrate him. So why do we celebrate God? Because he's great. He refers to him as my God, the King. He said, the Lord is great and highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. So we celebrate God because he is great, but we also celebrate God because his works are great. He said, I will meditate on the splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works. 
And we celebrate God every day as well as generation to generation. That's why the parents are to tell their children who will tell their children. As long as human life will last, we are telling of the greatness of God. A big part of what we do as Christians and a big part of what we do as the church is we tell of the greatness of God. And when we tell of the greatness of God, we are presenting to people the only true source of life, forgiveness, and joy. And we celebrate God because of his grace. He's gracious and merciful. We celebrate him because of his kingdom. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. And we celebrate God forever and ever. He says, all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Celebration provides perspective. And it gets you out of your own space to focus in on God and what is true. And then when the lies come... And the devil says, hey, go after this little moment of pleasure. Hey, go after this little moment of of sin. You think in your mind, because of the Holy Spirit, there's going to be a consequence to that. He's lying to me. He's not telling me the truth. But God tells me the truth. Now I conclude with some benefits of celebration. I'm going to move through these fairly quickly because I've given you them there in your notes anyway. But let me mention them before I conclude. Celebration is good because it causes us to pause and reflect. If you're having a birthday celebration, an anniversary celebration, a graduation, birth of a baby, a job promotion. I mean, we just name any number of things that are just normal life. Well, we get those things separated and we think, well, does God really care about it? Yeah, he cares about it. God's the one that gave you the blessing. Of course he cares about it. He's the one that was good to you that helped you with this. So we celebrate that. And it causes us to pause and reflect in that moment. Celebration recognizes memories and it creates memories. Sometimes people say, oh, it's not all that important. We don't need to celebrate birthdays like that. Or, oh, it's not all that important. We don't need to celebrate this or that. Well, speak for yourself. I like a little joy in my life. I like a little celebration. Let's go over the top just a little bit. What's wrong with that? We're going through this life experience. And we ought to be getting the most out of it in a good and godly way. But it recognizes memories and it creates memories. It's markers. Celebration shows appreciation for blessings. We're not just ho-hum when something good happens. We're like, this is amazing. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in my life. Celebration is an encouragement to others. Because when somebody else accomplishes something or somebody else has a birthday or somebody else does something exciting for the Lord or they're making a commitment in their spiritual walk or they're growing and they're, they're deepening as disciples, whatever the issue might be, We're encouraging them in that, and we're celebrating that. And he takes the focus off of self again, and it puts it on them. Celebration provides shape to the rhythms and seasons of life. I want you to think for a moment just about the structure of the holidays that we celebrate, some secular, some not secular. And do those things not provide some shape? Like, we spend time getting ready for the celebration of Christmas. We're getting ready now to celebrate Uh, Easter and the resurrection and there's all these other things that we celebrate throughout the year and we look forward to those things we anticipate them they they make life interesting it's something new it's something different than the day-to-day and it helps us in those rhythms and seasons of life celebration also reminds us of what truly matters and that's the people around us not the things that we're doing it's not our agenda it's not our hobbies it's not our whatever we think we're trying to get out of life only but we are investing in other people and taking the focus off of our selfish selves. And celebration, as I've already mentioned, gives us something to look forward to. 
Now, from a distinctly spiritual perspective, we celebrate when God changes lives through salvation. We celebrate when people profess him in baptism. We celebrate when lives are transformed and spiritual growth takes place and disciples are made. We celebrate when churches are started and God's mission and kingdom advance and more. In our day-to-day lives, we celebrate these other things that I just mentioned. But ultimately, I would say to you that celebration is a discipline and it has to be planned with purpose. And the reason a lot of people don't celebrate or I should say a reason some people don't celebrate, is they're lazy. It takes effort. If it's going to be about somebody else and you're going to plan something to celebrate about, somebody's going to do the work to celebrate. So I'm giving you permission to put the work in the celebration because it matters. Jesus shared the illustration with his disciples about the vineyard, the vineyard keeper, the vine, and the branches in John 15. And he spoke of the love of the Father, his commandments, and the importance of remaining in the love of God. Then he said this in John 15 and verse 11. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. So here's your challenge in closing. I want you to identify something to celebrate each day, however small it might be. You can celebrate, and I'm just giving you permission to do it, a good cup of coffee in the morning. That's worthy of celebration. You can celebrate a meal that's a blessing. You can celebrate a reasonably productive day at work where the wheels didn't come off the bus and everything was in place and it was just kind of okay. It was a good day. Celebrate that. Because those things are going to carry you through to the next. And then, of course, in a church setting, we, we find those bigger things I was talking about to celebrate as well. But here's what I know, because I know this about myself. We tend to see the negative complaints and criticisms very clearly and quickly. But our vision of things to celebrate is sometimes clouded. When you have an opportunity to celebrate something beyond the day-to-day, go all in. Celebrate, have joy, be grateful, and let the Lord shape your perspective through that. So I believe we can celebrate better than we do. And we're going to work on it a little bit more even in our church life, being intentional about celebrating certain things and not just going through the motions on certain things. But I want to encourage you that in your own life as well. And it may be you need to take a little and just make a list each day. I'm going to pick one thing I'm going to, be, I'm going to celebrate today. And you need to write that down in your prayer list or your prayer journal. Um, and make it a discipline that day to day I'm going to find something today that I can be thankful to God for. And that's going to give me cause for celebration. So let's pray together and we're going to wrap up our time tonight. Uh, God, I'm thankful that you're the God of all joy. I'm thankful that there is a big celebration coming in heaven. There's going to be a a marriage supper of the Lamb that is going to surpass any celebration, any meal, anything we've ever seen. And that's exciting. We look forward to seeing you, Lord, being in your presence, Jesus, and experiencing all the good things that you have for us as we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But in the meantime, help us to get a better perspective 
to celebrate better, to identify the day-to-day things that are goodness that comes from your hand and help us to be protected from our spiritual enemy who tells us lies and who wants us to believe that he has something better for us. Lord, rescue us from that. Protect us from our enemy and from the idols that are put in front of us and help us to celebrate well, both individually as families and as a church, and in that to show a tremendous amount of gratitude to you. And Lord, uh, bless the remainder of this week and all that you have in front of us. We look forward to coming back together and worship on Sunday. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.